Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. What do you think when I uh, say something to you like, you've crossed the line, you've crossed the line. Uh, Maybe you're Jason and you said something inappropriate and uh, I got to call you out uh, in front of people. I can say that because he's back in the closet. Uh, maybe you're one of my kids and I told you to stop messing with the other one and you just keep having to like touch the other sibling and you can't help yourself. And I'm just like, you cross the line, stop it, you know. Um, so we have this strong metaphorical concept of figurative concept of what crossing the line means. Uh, but we also can understand physical lines or physical boundary markers. Uh, I want to start by showing, uh, showing a picture of the four corners, uh, a spot where four states come together in the western United States if you stand in this spot, you can actually sort of stand in four states at the same time. We, we understand that there's like this imaginary line that's dividing these four states. It doesn't look, I mean, like if you didn't have this little thing there, you wouldn't know. You'd just be standing on some, some ground somewhere. But there's this like imaginary line that goes through all those things. Uh, another example of this is in North and South uh, Korea, there's this uh, boundary uh, in between them called the demilitarized zone that's miles across. Um, And what that does is it uh, allows for peace between these two countries. Um, And these two countries have remarkably different economies. They have remarkably different governments. They have remarkably different societies. And this demilitarized zone, this orange line and that blue line, uh, they highlight this division between these two countries. So there's all these ways we think about crossing a line or, or, or this idea of what a line does, a line of demarcation. Now, in the ancient world, what's interesting is, is that um, they didn't have maps like this that had little lines or like little placards in the middle of the desert where <laughs> four states could be divided like that. Uh, but what they did have in the ancient world is they had bodies of water. And bodies of water often provided natural barriers between countries or between tribal lands. Um, because the truth of the matter is, is that something that we take for granted in the modern world, which is bridges, bridges over these bodies of water, bridges were fairly uncommon in the ancient world. And so bodies of water, you had to plan around them, uh, especially if you were traveling, especially if you were doing some sort of military campaign. You had to think about and think around these bodies of water. Now, even in modern times, uh, we can understand this. For example, I can put up the, uh, the map of the state of Kentucky here. Why does Kentucky look so weird? Why is it not like a perfect square? Because one of our borders is the Ohio River. So even in like relatively modern times, uh, water has been seen as a dividing line. And so this morning, what we're going to be talking about is that moment when phase one of the Exodus, removing Israel from Egypt, is complete. At the end of this morning's sermon, we will be completely out of Egypt, and uh, the Egyptians will be defeated. And so that moment is found, of course, in the Red Sea, or as we're going to find out, the Reed Sea is probably the better translation, the Reed Sea Crossing. And I've titled this sermon, The Dividing Line. Now, before we read the passage for this morning, I want to make a couple brief comments about the Exodus. Uh, The first one is that Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 in most modern English translations says that there were 600,000 men uh, who left in the Exodus, not including the women and the children, which has left a lot of people thinking that there may have been as many as 2 or 3 million people uh, that left Egypt and went into the wilderness. Now, it turns out that there are a number of reasons that I believe that this is a mistranslation according to internal biblical evidence. 
Uh, it, the word for thousand, 600,000 men, could actually also be translated as clan or military unit. And so that would suggest a much smaller group of people. If you have 600 military units, a military unit could be like 10 people. And so if you have 600 military units, that's quite a bit different than 600,000 men. And so we're thinking maybe, I'm thinking a lot of the scholars I've read have suggested that you're looking at a group of about 20 or 50,000 total people, possibly in the Exodus, instead of 2 million. And that's still a lot of people. In fact, I think I read somewhere that the caravan size for the number of people and the number of livestock and all the supplies that they would have had would have been like three miles across and a couple miles deep, even with just 20,000 people. And so it's, it's a pretty staggering thing with just 20,000 people. And I want to be clear, and I think a lot of other people like the Bible Project and other places that I looked at, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that God couldn't take 2 million people into the wilderness. I think God could take 2 million people into the wilderness. I think the question that I'm asking is historically, is that what happened? Is it 2 million people or is it 20,000 people? It's, it's wonderful either way. All right. Second, there's a lot of debates about the route of the Exodus. Um, I want to put a slide up here for the traditional route or one example of a traditional route. Uh, one example of the traditional route takes people through um, the crossing of the Red Sea happens at an inland lake. You can see it happens at an inland lake and then they go down into the Sinai Peninsula and they uh, show Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula and then they end up on uh, the edge of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is this, this body of water right here. These two, the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba, are actually both part of the Red Sea, the modern Red Sea. Um, and so, but you notice here that Moses, Moses was the first one to make this journey, right? He made this journey 40 years before the Israelites made that journey. He met with God on the mountain of God while he was tending his father-in-law's flock of sheep. And where was his father-in-law from? Midian. Now, where's Midian? Oh, it's over here. And what's interesting is in the book of Galatians, Paul mentions that Mount Sinai very specifically is in Arabia. This is not Arabia. This is Arabia. And so, anyway, there's, there's a lot of debate about the route. Uh, but if you want to know more about all the different possibilities, I recommend this book. It's The Miracles of Exodus by Colin Humphreys. He's a British physicist. He spent a lot of time looking into all this. This is his route. If you want to show that, uh, Caleb. This is his route for the Exodus. His route takes you on a Red Sea crossing over the Gulf of Aqaba, which is part of the Red Sea. And then he takes us down into uh, a mountain, a volcano, actually, that's in, the, in, the, in Arabia. So that's his, his route. Um, now, I want to show you what he says about uh, why he thinks that. If we want to go to the next slide real quick. Uh, there was an ancient trade route that went from... Uh, the part of the world where the Israelites likely were near Ramses and went all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba and then went down into Arabia. And this is what he suggests that that trade route, that southern trade route that goes from Egypt all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba, that's what he suggests is the way of the wilderness that we're going to read about here in a moment in the book of Exodus. So again, there's a lot of debate on this. I don't want to be too, uh, put my, you know, fist down too hard on that, but I do want to mention that I do believe that it's likely that, uh, that the Mount, Mount Sinai was likely a volcano that was in Arabia, not the typical one that you see on the map that's Mount Sinai that's in the Sinai Peninsula. So with that, let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to read the end of Exodus chapter 13, and then we're going to get into the crossing of the Red or the Reed Sea. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness. Remember, we talked about the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord, or Yahweh, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So again, I mentioned that um, we see Red Sea in a lot of these translations. I said it could, it could be Red, uh, Reed Sea instead of Red Sea. Uh, the, the Hebrew phrase Yom Suf uh, actually is it's very clear should be translated Reed Sea. There's like zero debate among scholars that the Hebrew means Reed Sea. Well, then you might ask the question, well, why do I read Red Sea in every single translation? Well, that's because the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, had Red Sea. And it was very clearly Red Sea. Um, so what are we to make with all this Reed Sea, Red Sea? What, what do we make of all this? I'm going to add another possibility. <laughs> Tim Mackey uh, cites Bible scholar Bernard Bato, who thinks that there's a double meaning here. It could mean like end or cutoff point. So we've got Reed Sea, we've got Red Sea, and now we've got a third possibility, end or cutoff point. Uh, now, it depends on your view of the Exodus. And like I said, there's a lot of debate about exactly what the route was and all those things. But if you agree with Humphreys, the location that he has selected has reeds, so it is a reed sea, it's a part of the Gulf of Aqaba, which means it's part of the Red Sea, and as we're going to find out, the topography makes it an end or a cutoff point. So Colin Humphreys' option actually matches all three. So you can call it, what I'm trying to say here is you can call it the reed sea, you can call it the Red Sea, you can call it a cutoff point. I think all of them are true. All of them are true. Um, So the other thing I want to mention is uh, they mention like Succoth and Etham and the way of the wilderness. There's all these references to physical, uh, the physical geography of the route of the Exodus. And unfortunately, these things don't mean much to us anymore, but I think they would have meant a lot to the people in the ancient world. Now think about this. If you're trying to like make up a story about like the origin of your people, why would you include all this detail about like exactly where you camped along the way? Like, especially if they're not like locations that are easily verifiable, right? So I think this lends a lot of credibility to like this actually happened. These, these events actually took place. And I also want to point out, we just read a couple of verses here. And um, in the Passover, they left in the middle of the night. They started traveling on the, on the road. Uh, but it would have taken them seven days to get to the Gulf of Aqaba. So likely the verses that we just read covered at least a couple of days, if not a full week. And they likely would have traveled about 25 miles between camps. There's something spiritual I think we can learn from this little section at the end of chapter 13 as well. Uh, Notice how God uh, leads them away from one type of challenge. If they go north, they go toward the Philistines and they go towards war with the Philistines. And if they go south, they head uh, into the wilderness, into, you know, a barren place where eventually they can refuel at the Gulf of Aqaba. There's a much, the, the much shorter route is the northern route. If you want to get to uh, modern-day Israel, going through the Philistines' land is, like, by far the shortest route. But God opts to take them the longer route to avoid 
war with the Philistines. I think this apparent route adjustment had another benefit to it. And again, remember that Moses met with God on the mountain, which I believe was in, was in Midian or near Midian. And he told Moses, God told Moses that one of the signs that he would give him is that the children of Israel would worship God on that mountain. So the detour wasn't just to avoid conflict with the Philistines, although that's part of it. The other benefit of this was that he was leading them to the mountain to worship him and to learn more about God. And so I think, I think if we're looking for an application for that, sometimes, I'm not, I'm not saying every challenge in life is like this, I want to be very clear about this, but sometimes I think we face challenges, and in the moment that we're facing a challenge, uh, God's leading us a direction towards one type of challenge when another tougher type of challenge was possible. So sometimes, you know, we're, we're upset, we're grumbling, we're complaining because we're going through one type of challenge, but really God was like, well, there's really sort of only two options here, and, and this is the easier of the two and the better of the two. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. Let's continue reading in Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Uh, there are two things I want to explain about this section before we move forward. Uh, the first one is, it says that uh, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I talked about this in a deep dive, but in case you didn't have time to listen to it, uh, there are two words for hardening throughout this whole passage. The, the whole passage has two different words for hardening. Uh, one means to like strengthen your heart, which in that culture and in our culture is like a positive thing. It's a good thing to strengthen your heart. And then the other one is like the hardening, the negative, uh, make you more foolish, make you uh, unlikely to change, that kind of hardening. And so the strength, the one here is strengthening. And Yahweh, pretty much entirely throughout the passage, there's one example where he doesn't uh, strengthen, he does the other one. Um, and you should go listen to the deep dive if you want to know more about that. That's in Exodus 10, verse 1. I spent a lot of time on it. Uh, we don't have time for that this morning. Uh, but, but this one is strengthening. It's a good thing. So Pharaoh wanted to pursue the Israelites. God says, yep, go pursue the Israelites. Now, why did God do this? In the text here, it says that he would get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And I think uh, most commentators have, have drawn the connection between uh, what's going to happen, which I don't think I'm spoiling it too much, but they're going to die at the end of the story. Um, so people have suggested that that glory is in the death of the Egyptians. And I don't think that that's necessary. I think that that's possible. But Rabbi Foreman in this book that I've been talking about a lot, the Exodus he almost passed over, uh, notices something about uh, the echoes between this and a prior time when people of Israel left uh, Egypt. And that was in the time when Joseph went back and took his father's bones back to the promised land to be buried. And if you go to Genesis chapter 50, verses 7 and 8, we're not going to do that today. But if you go back and read the passage in Genesis 50, what you find is... Egypt had already thrown uh, Jacob an elaborate funeral. They had done everything the way that the Egyptians normally would. They treated him essentially like an ambassador or like a pharaoh. He was treated with incredibly high respect. And after the period of Egyptian mourning, which took a quite a bit of time, what happened was uh, Joseph, I'm, I'm sure with his tail sort of between his legs, goes to Pharaoh and says, actually, that's not what would honor my father. This is not the kind of barrow that would honor my father. He told me I actually should be taking his bones 
back to his, our homeland, back to the promised land. And, what, and this Pharaoh had a choice. This Pharaoh could have decided, no, this is offensive to me. I'm not going to let you. We just gave him the, the burial of a Pharaoh. Why would you undo everything I just did for like 40 days? And what that Pharaoh did is he had humility and said, well, if that's the way your father would want to be uh, remembered, then let's do it that way. And when that happened, Pharaoh not only relented, he not only let Joseph take Jacob's bones back to the promised land, he sent an honor guard. He sent his whole army with Joseph. And so what Rabbi Foreman suggests is that God wanted an honor guard on this exodus too. That you sent, you sent your honor guard out with the bones of Jacob, you're going to send an honor guard out with my people today as well. And the point that Rabbi Foreman makes is that God didn't harden his heart to step into the sea. <laughs> God hardened his heart, strengthened his heart so that he would follow. The Egyptians had every opportunity to relent and to stop. And you know, his point is he believes God would have wanted them to stop at the edge of the water. Let's continue reading. We're going to skip ahead to verse 9. We're going to skip around a little bit. We're going to read a couple verses and we're going to skip to verse 21. So we'll start with verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hiharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to, to us and bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Man, that's some pretty intense grumbling there. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And the interesting thing about the silence there at the end of verse 14 uh, multiple commentaries said that that was sort of a euphemism for what God's saying here. Uh, in our modern parlance, he would have said, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to shut up. <laughs> you only have to shut up. <laughs> so stop it. Stop complaining. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians." Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. So once they started following and threatening the children of Israel, God had to take action. He had to uh, take care of his people, protect his people. Uh, I want to show the map that Humphreys suggests for the actual Reed Sea crossing to sort of picture, better picture the scene that we just read about. And I want us to take a moment and imagine that we're there. 
Uh, you're part of a group of 20,000 people escaping slavery. You're with your family. You're with your livestock. You've packed enough food and water for seven days on your donkeys. And it's taken seven days, but you finally made it to the coast of the Gulf of Aqaba, where you can replenish your supplies of food and water. Now, to get down to the shore along this trade route, you notice that there's like a little dip down. That's because uh, there's this um, a narrow series of passes and switchbacks that you have to do in the last three miles before you get to the Gulf of Aqaba. You go from 2,500 feet above sea level down to sea level in the space of three miles. Now, there are two major roads to your camp. Uh, the one is to the southwest, like I pointed out, and the other one is directly north. Now, because of how narrow that passageway down along the major trade route is, chariots would not have been able to take that route. They would have had to have diverted up uh, north and then come from the north uh, due south, as you can see on the map. So this is, this is what you would have been picturing. You're by the Gulf of Aqaba. You're, you're, you're camped exactly where God told you to be. To your southwest, or you could say behind you in some sense, behind you, you have the foot soldiers of Egypt coming. They're coming down the trade route the same way that you came. To the north, which is the only other road, the only other road to escape, you've got, you hear the sound of chariots coming down from the north. And it would have taken them a little extra time, but they, uh, they would have made it in time because they're chariots. They can go a lot faster than foot soldiers can. Now, to your uh, west, you have cliffs. You can't climb up those cliffs. You're completely boxed in on that side. Now, if you notice, to your direct south, what do you have? You've got water due south of you. You're in this little cutout at the top of the Gulf of Aqaba. To your east, what do you have? You've got water. So you've got water here and here. You've got cliffs here. You've got an army approaching from here and chariots approaching from there. This is a trap. God has led them into a trap. <laughs> now, at that moment... When you're surrounded on all sides, that's when you cry out to Moses and you say, we're here to die. You're about to, we're about to die. And, and while there is an element of this that I think we're supposed to learn from and grow from and not grumble and not complain and not be as afraid, I think there is a human aspect of this that we realize that we all go through. This aspect of fear and not trust, fully trusting God and not fully uh, believing that he can bring us through. But, but at the same time, God has already showed them some really dramatic ways in which he's already moved. So with that, in that moment, you, you cry out to Yahweh, and Moses says, just be quiet. And then he stretches out his rod, and this is what you see. <laughs> this is what you see. He lifts his staff, the same staff that turned into a snake, the same staff that turned the Nile into blood. The wind starts blowing, and the water starts to part. And soon the ground is dry enough to walk on. Now, this path across the sea, there's 20,000 of you, and it would have taken probably two to three hours for everyone to cross. But you make it. You make it to the other side, watching as water is heaped up on both sides of you. If you think about it, you have these two approaching armies. You have nowhere to go. Quite literally, as you're walking down this water path, this path through the sea, death is behind you. But death isn't just behind you. Death is on both sides of you. So you have death behind you, slavery behind you, death beside you, and the only way is forward. And that way forward is to life and it's to freedom. This water, the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, whatever you want to call it, this body of water has become the dividing line of your life. It's become the dividing life, the dividing line of your life. 
When you cross that sea, you're changed. You're part of a new group. You're a new person. You're now a member of the nation of Israel. You're not a slave anymore. It's unbelievable. And for years, this moment, I mean, this is a powerful moment. This moment would reverberate in the minds and imaginations of the Hebrew people for years and years and years. Uh, put some echoes up here on the slide. Uh, this, this crossing gets mentioned in Psalm 77 and Psalm 78 and Psalm 106, Psalm 114 and Psalm 136. It gets mentioned a couple times in Isaiah, in Habakkuk, and in Nehemiah. This is a powerful moment for the people of Israel. And it's interesting that God did something very similar with the Jordan uh, River crossing for that second generation. So God, for the first generation, he does this incredible sea crossing. For the second generation, the generation that actually goes into the promised land, if you want to look at at Joshua chapter 3, you'll see that they cross the Jordan River in a similar kind of way. And so they also get a literal crossing. Nobody else gets a literal crossing in the rest of the Bible. That's sort of sad. I wish I had a literal crossing. Now, in the Christian context, when I say death and slavery are behind you and life and freedom is in front of you, what am I talking about? Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. If I'm saying death and slavery is behind you and life and freedom is in front of you, I'm referring to baptism. When Paul refers to the sea crossing in 1 Corinthians, he calls it baptism into Moses in the, cl- in the cloud and in the sea. That's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. In 1 Peter 3, Peter refers to Noah being saved through water and relates that to baptism as well. It seems that God's people are constantly being saved through water. Saved through water. It's a common theme in the Bible. But in Romans chapter 6, we get this language that reminds us of this Red Sea crossing. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Water baptism is a figure for death and rebirth. And now it's true that you can go through Uh, the act of being dunked in the water without experiencing the change of having the Spirit. I get that there are sort of two aspects of this. And I'm not suggesting that baptism in water makes for any metaphysical changes. Uh, Metaphysical means beyond the physical. The beyond the physical change happens when you receive the Spirit of God. We all can agree with that. What I am saying is, is that God ordained this practice of water baptism as a way for us to imitate death and rebirth, just as God gave us communion to remember Uh, the death and the life that we have in Christ. Now, notice here that when we get into the water, we are united with his death, just like the Passover celebration brought new generations of people into the celebration of that original Passover. We are united with his death, just like that Passover, year after year after year, brought you into relationship with that original generation, that original Passover. 
we somehow transform into a person with Christ at the cross. We die with him in that moment. It's a way for us to participate in the events of Jesus' death. But it's not just that. It's not just his death. It's not just his burial. When we come out of the water, we are raised with him. And that means that when we, when we experience that, it's like we're there at the resurrection. We're there at the empty tomb. Now, for many of us, uh, we might be thinking that, you know, I came from a tradition where water baptism was sort of seen as a, an unnecessary thing or like a, sort of like a dead figure or something like that. And I, I can understand that from our modern perspective, I think that that's, it, it's sort of easy for us to make that kind of a leap. Uh, because in our times, water baptism, uh, for the churches that do it, it's something where everybody applauds. It's like a happy day. Like, yeah, you got water baptized. Everyone's so happy. But I want to suggest to you that in the first century, water baptism would have been way more like putting the blood on the door and on the side posts uh, during the Passover. Because being a Christian was not a common thing back then, and it was a very dangerous thing. And in fact, if we go back in our minds to the end of the first century, uh, after the time of the reign of Nero, uh, the Roman government is beginning to persecute Christians more and more and more. Uh, the great apostle Paul, for example, was killed in, in sometime in the 60s AD uh, for the sake of the gospel. The temple in Jerusalem gets destroyed in AD 70. Now, you live in one of those cities that Paul reached. Maybe you live in Ephesus or another city like it. There's a vibrant church there. You hear the gospel and you believe. The final step for you to be part of that community of faith was this moment of water baptism. That's when you were sort of initiated into the community. Now, what that would have meant for you, though, is you would have been traveling with a group of Christians, people that everyone in the city knows are Christians. You would have been traveling with a group of people that everyone knows they are Christians. You would have walked outside of the city walls. You would have found either a river or a lake or something like that to baptize yourself in. You would have gotten baptized by that group of people. Then you would have come back into the city limits wet with Christians. Now, everyone knew what that meant. Everyone knew that that meant that now you are publicly taking on the status of being a Christian. And that would have put you on, on, with a target on your back. It'd be like us today, when we become Christians, uh, going onto a website and like signing ourselves up for the FBI watch list. Just being like, yep, I'm going to sign up for the FBI watch list right now. That's, that's the modern day equivalent of what water baptism was. And so... You know, we can, we can look at it a lot of different ways, but I'm suggesting from the ancient world's perspective, what this was is it was, it was a physical uh, ritual, was designed to imitate Christ's death and the resurrection, but there's this added element of danger that many of our brothers and sisters face in the early moments of the church. And so, of course, water baptism is a personal moment for you to celebrate the death of your past life. It is a time to celebrate the newness of your life in Christ. It is a time to remember that you're no longer in Egypt. You are headed to the promised land. You are on your exodus journey. Baptism is a declaration of faith. It's a symbol of passing through the waters with death and slavery behind you and life and freedom in front of you. Baptism is the dividing line of life. Uh, I was thinking about how we use B.C. and A.D. to orient uh, the years on our calendar. It's before Christ and in the year of our Lord. And, of course, in modern times, we've changed it to like B.C.E. And, <laughs> and C.E., before Common Era and Common Era, to like try to put the Jesus out of it. But like the calendar doesn't change. It's still the same. It's not like they've pushed it back thousands of years or something like that. But just like we use B.C. and A.D. on the calendar before Christ and in the year of our Lord to describe the years on our calendar, 
so the same descriptions apply to us when we go through the process of coming into Christ. And water baptism is a way to memorialize that. As we close, when you come out of the water, what are you supposed to do? In Exodus chapter 15, I'm going to turn back there, Exodus chapter 15, they come out of this water, and the first thing that they do is they praise God. Verse 1, Exodus 15, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then the end of the song is verse 18. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. So when the new nation of Israel came out of the water, they praised Yahweh in song. And at the end of the song, they emphasized the truth that God reigns, not Pharaoh. That Yahweh reigns, not Pharaoh. These people had passed from serving Pharaoh to serving Yahweh. What's interesting about this song is that the song is mentioned again in Revelation chapter 15, which shows us the timeless nature of this song in the context of praising God. So as we close today, those of you, especially those of you online I'm thinking about, that haven't made the final decision yet to follow Jesus, I encourage you to cross that dividing line, to put the slavery to sin and the bondage in your past, and to walk forward into the newness of life that Christ has for you. And those of us who have made that decision, let's remember that the old ways of Egypt are past and that we have newness of life in front of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you have made uh, this process available, that we can become new, that you have given us your son, that we can experience this newness of life. Father, we, we see our whole lives arranged the way that you would have it, that we see our life before Christ and we see our lives available after Christ and we want to walk in increasing newness of life now. Help us to to live that way. Help us to see uh, the things that you have placed before us. Um, Help us to not uh, neglect uh, the the wonderful things, the blessings and uh, the callings and the giftings that you've given us. Help us to uh, seek out uh, your truth and your community Help us to see how we can help others to get to this point of crossing this dividing line from death into life. Father, we just want to love you and serve you, and um, we're so thankful that your spirit makes that available to us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.